So this morning's reading is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body of the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit." Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father, we do rejoice in uh, being your people, and we do ask, Father, that as we look on this passage and what it means to be your people, that, Father, you would give us understanding and a deeper sense of this great privilege, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've probably come across uh, what people call the basic human needs. Food, water, shelter, clothing. But I wonder if there's a, a greater need, or just as an essential need, that we often miss. And that is the need to belong to be accepted by others. See, all of us, we have that innate desire to belong, don't we? And when that desire is not met, we know how damaging it is. It's why solitary confinement is considered so inhumane. It's why loneliness is such a problem. And it's why, with this pandemic, that the damage is not just from the virus itself, but from the loneliness and, that comes from isolation. See, just like that desire for food and drink, we are driven by that desire to belong. We love it, of course, when we're accepted. We hate it when we're rejected. A few years ago, I went to a dinner party, and um, I'd I'd just moved to this uh, new area, and I was invited around to get to know some people. And I was having a good time. Uh, I think everyone else was having a good time. But then the conversation turned to classical music. Now, let's just say classical music is not my specialist subject, and it's never going to be. I only know about classical music if it's been on a famous advert. 
But the rest of the evening was spent talking about all the composers people knew, their favorite hits, uh, that type of thing. And I just, just kept quiet. And I went away from the evening feeling like I didn't belong. Now, I, that's a very trivial example, I know. But that feeling, it often can be so powerful that we try and shape our lives to belong. Working the extra hours so that the boss sees changing the way we look so our friends are impressed, posting our charity runs or the great days we're having on Facebook so we get the likes and are accepted. Because we all have that desire, don't we? To belong. Now, the challenge for a Christian is that fundamentally we don't belong. We're distinct from this world. We're not separate from this world. We're not monks. But we are, Jesus says, of a different kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. And the challenge is that that difference so often can leave us as Christians with that feeling of we don't belong. And so hard it is to to live with that feeling that often we're tempted to to do the double life thing. All of us have found ourselves, haven't we? Uh, I've done it myself, keeping quiet at the office or the dinner party for the fear we might stand out, for the fear we might seem a bit of a weirdo. I mean, even if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you'll know some of that in the sense that I guess one of the reasons you're not is because it's just not the majority thing to do. Why would you become a Christian? Why would you risk not belonging to where the majority of people are? See, our passage this morning, though, is all about assuring us that we do belong. We do belong. We belong in the most important relationship, a most significant relationship that we can imagine. See, the, the Ephesian church, um, to, uh, which Paul writes to you here, they face that same desire to belong as we did, as we do, rather. See, they found themselves looking very strange in their world. See, no one in the ancient world would think that you had a credible religion without some sort of temple or some sort of God you could show people. And so the Jewish nation, they had their temple in Jerusalem, and it looked very impressive. And in Ephesus, they had their temple to Artemis. Uh, Here's a statue of Artemis, the goddess. And um, there would have been these statues all over the city. You remember in Acts 19, there's a riot because um, some of the sales of of Artemis are undermined. And so business deals across the city would have been dedicated to her. Parties would have started with an offering. But in contrast, we find the Ephesian church with no temple, no statues, just a group of ordinary people meeting in ordinary houses with faith in an invisible Messiah. And you can imagine, can't you, how much they felt that isolation from their society, from the way the world's doing things. And Paul writes them in that context and shows them that fundamentally they do belong. Actually, Paul's approach here is quite interesting because he actually makes the problem a lot worse. He seems to pour fuel on the flames uh, before he gets uh, to, the, to the solution to the problem. See, look at verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision. Verse 12, remember that at one time you were separate from Christ excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. 
I mean, it couldn't get more worse, could it? He's speaking there about uncircumcised. Circumcised basically means Jew and Gentile. And you'll know that between Jewish people and Gentile people that there ran this firewall so that both groups were separate. Why were they separate? Well, God had promised through the Jewish nation that he would bless the world. But over the centuries, that promise, that covenant to bless Israel had turned Israel into a bit of an exclusive club. Uh, William Barclay, the Scottish biblical scholar from the last century, he, he writes this, the Jewish people had immense contempt for the nations, the Gentiles. So um, he writes, if a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. See, they were poles apart. They didn't belong. But what's interesting here, Paul doesn't kind of brush over that division. He doesn't say, come on, guys, we're all the same. Let's uh, hold hands and get on. He says, actually, that division was far greater than they realized. Verse 12, he says, remember that one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope, without God in this world. And so their problem wasn't they didn't have the right passport. Their problem was they didn't know God. They were without hope. See, fundamentally, Paul says they didn't belong. They stood on the outside looking in to God's people. And this is where the majority of people in our world find ourselves. We all face us a big no-entry sign between us and God. See, I think this is particularly controversial in our culture, isn't it? Because we assume that if there is a God, well, of course he would accept us. I'm me, after all. Surely I can kind of waltz into his presence anytime I want. But actually, that is hugely presumptuous. Because none of us have the right to access him. None of us can just march into his throne room. None of us actually essentially have the right to belong. Now, I know that's hard to hear, but I find that refreshing that Paul is as honest as he is. Because it would have been very easy, wouldn't it, to gloss over the problem. But he doesn't. He says, actually, you were excluded. And I wonder when it comes to the division that our world feels so much today, that it's this sort of honesty that's needed. See, our world wants to be united, and that is a good desire. But so often it comes from the argument is that we should just kind of get along. But it so massively underplays the problem. See, the divisions of our world are endemic of a greater division between the whole of humanity and their creator. See, the polarization, the division we see around us is not the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is this world has turned its back on its creator but that's where we find ourselves. But Paul goes on in verses 14 to 18 to shift from that separation on to what Jesus does. See, look at verse 13. He says this, but, I love this but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. There's a lot going on in those verses, but Paul there, you'll notice, is speaking about a barrier, a dividing wall, 
But this is not a wall made of bricks and concrete. It's made of the law. See, a lot of people imagine that if we need to access God, well, we've got to keep the rules. We've got to do the right thing. And by doing so, we'll be able to get to know God. But actually, the opposite is true. The law divides us from God. See, the law is like a mirror. It reveals what it means to be holy. And, but as we look in that mirror, we realize we're not. I don't know if you've had this moment where you walk into one of those kind of fashionable clothes shops. I don't go into them very often, you could probably tell. But um, you know when you go into them, the music's blaring, they've got cool people working there, the, the posters on the outside are all well-dressed and beautiful people. And you walk in, and what have they got right in front of you? Well, they have a mirror, don't they, from ceiling to floor. And there's bright lights on the mirror, and you look in the mirror and you think, my goodness me, what a mess. I mean, look at my clothes, look at my hair, look at what I look like. And so you think to yourself, I must go and buy some clothes from this store. That's the idea. And as much as we want to approach God, it's like we're faced with that mirror constantly, showing up to us what's really in our hearts. So if we think the law is the answer to bridge the separation, well, we're going to constantly find ourselves falling short. But he says, verse 15, that Jesus has destroyed the barrier, setting aside in his flesh the law. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus dismisses the law. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, he upholds the law. And it doesn't mean that the law can just be kind of ignored. Paul's going to go on to use the law in chapter 6. He's going to use one of the Ten Commandments but that Christ kept the law. He could look in the mirror and feel no shame, and yet he died like one who had broken the law. But when he did that, he set aside the law. He paid its penalty. He lived it perfectly. And so verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near. Notice that phrase again, now in Christ. Remember the aeroplane? I know I keep going on about it, but I I can't think of a better illustration. Um, It's that idea again, isn't it? Being in Christ. See, to to be in Christ is to be on the aeroplane. To travel somewhere, you need to be in the plane, not on the plane, not by the plane. You need to be in it. And the moment you are, he says, you then belong. In Christ, we've been brought near. And so verse 18, he says, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. We have access. We belong. I don't know if you've seen this picture here. Uh, It's a great picture. You you may have uh, come across it before, but um, uh, obviously it's of uh, John F. Kennedy uh, sitting in the Oval Office at his desk. But as you look closely at the picture, you'll notice that um, his son is poking his head through the desk at the bottom. And it's a great picture, isn't it? Because um, you'll know the Oval Office is somewhere that you just can't access. I mean, it's probably the most heavily guarded place on earth. It's not a place you can waltz into or try and, open, um, try and enter. But it's different for John F. Kennedy's son. He can enter any time he wants because he's his son. He has access. And it's the same with Jesus because Jesus has died to the law and set it aside. He sits at God's right hand, so through him we can have access to the Father. See, many of us, we spend our lives, don't we, trying to get that sense of belonging. 
We try and shape our personalities. I've done this to, to kind of fit in with the clique, or we try and lose the extra pounds to fit in uh, with a certain group of people, or perhaps we go to the gym and try and gain an extra few pounds to fit in with certain type of people. All in that kind of effort to belong. And you know how it is. It's very shaky, isn't it? Because the moment you do that, you're constantly thinking, will I stay belonging? Will I stay as part of this group? Will someone work harder and be, I'll be overlooked for promotion? Or will my friendship group change their mind about me? But fundamentally, in Christ, we do belong. And we belong safely because it, that assurance rests on Jesus' death, not on what we're doing. Everything has been done so that we belong. But what's interesting here is that that reconciliation between us and God doesn't just stay vertical, it then goes horizontal as well. See, the law uh, Paul speaks about here isn't just a barrier between people and God. It is also a barrier between Jewish people and Gentile people. See, um, Paul's speaking here in the context of uh, the Jewish law um, Uh, how the law was understood by the Jewish people. And it seems that people understood the law as not only a way of showing you how to be holy, but also protecting, like a fence, the Jewish people. So there's a bit of teaching from the second century BC. It says this, uh, God fenced us in with walls of iron to the end that we should not mingle no way with any other nation so that we should not be polluted or infected by perversions by associating Uh, with those worthless persons. He's fenced us in. So you get the idea, the law is a protective shield uh, around the Jewish people, and that meant that they were separate from the nations around them. Now, to give you an example of this, uh, uh, the end of the 19th century, they dug this stone up. Uh, It's a stone from the temple, uh, one of the temple walls. And uh, it says on this, um, let no foreigner enter within the parapets. Is that how you say it? Yeah, parapets. And the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating would be held accountable for his ensuring death. What a warning, eh? I mean, we've got a few warning signs about keeping social distance, but none quite like that. Uh, But you get the idea, don't you? You couldn't just waltz into the temple grounds. And it wasn't you're going to slap on the wrist. You were responsible for your own execution. But as Jesus breaks down that dividing wall between us and God... He also breaks down that dividing wall between people. See, verse 15, he says, By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Do you see? He makes peace between people. How does he do that? Well, through one new man, both Jew and Gentile become one new people. Um, now, this is a bit complicated to get your head around. I've tried to do a diagram. There's probably all sorts of things wrong with it. You can tell me afterwards. But this is the point. The Jewish people don't come to God through some other route. They come through Christ. But also, the Gentiles also come from Christ. And so there's not kind of two tiers of humanity. There's not one class and another class. All come through Christ. Both need Christ and his blood to cover their sins. Now, as soon as we recognize that, that horizontal division then melts away. 
because both need Christ. Both use the same entrance. There's no sense in which one group is superior or cut off from another. See, you can't reconcile vertically without reconciling horizontally. See, Christ's death, it works in two directions. Just think about this for a moment. What, what is the root of human division? What is it that causes us to polarize and separate from one another? Is it not that sense of superiority that we have over another? I mean, if you're on the right politically, you probably look at the left and you think, well, they're really naive or they're really woke. Or if you're on the left, you look at the right and think, well, they're really selfish, they're really entitled. Or you divide on racial grounds because you think, well, we're not like those people. Or national lines, we don't behave like uh, those countries. Or classes, you think, well, we're better than those people, we're better behaved, we're more civilized. Or you look at the other class and you think, well, at least we're more real and more genuine. There's all sorts of reasons, aren't there? But it's all that sense of superiority to feel that I belong to the exclusive group. But here's the thing, the gospel kicks away the planks from any claim to superiority. See, the moment you believe in Jesus is the moment you're acknowledging you need him and him alone, that you don't belong. And so there's no place for coming to Christ and feeling superior to another human being. See, there's no special category. All of us come through Christ. See, it pains me when I look at the world because I just think the world has that desire to unite but doesn't really understand the full problem and doesn't really understand the solution. See, without tackling our hearts and that sense of superiority, which the gospel does, we cannot be united. See, we didn't belong, but in Christ's death, he brings us to belong to God and to each other. But why are we to know this? What does Paul tell us? Uh, why does he tell us all this? Well, have a look back at chapter 1, verse 17, as we um, uh, come into land. Verse, chapter 1, verse 17. This is Paul's big purpose in these chapters. He says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And remember, Paul's speaking here to a group of Christians who are doing all right, but he wants them to know God and what they have in him. And so coming back to chapter 2, verse 18, he wants us to know that we have access to the Father by one Spirit. And this really is the heart of what Paul's driving at in this letter. And in fact, this is the heart of the gospel. See, the gospel isn't just about kind of reconciling us to God as an end in itself. It's not about getting us into heaven. It's about knowing God. It's about belonging. And actually, as you zoom out and look across the whole of Scripture, you realize that that's what God has been doing all along. Think back to the Garden of Eden. How was Adam? Well, he would belong to God. He belonged to his wife. And of course, the fall broke all that, and there was a division between God and people, and Adam and Eve uh, turned on one another. But God worked again. He chose Israel. Why did he choose Israel? To, well, to make himself known, so they may know him. Here's what um, Exodus 6 says. I will take you to be my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I'm the Lord your God. 
But of course, as we know, the story goes on. Israel turned their back on God and turned to other gods. But in Jesus, he's brought them near to know God. See, the gospel is fundamentally to save us to know God and to know God now. See, we don't allow everyone to sort of have access in relationships, do we? Um, All of us have boundaries. I have to turn off my emails. I have to turn off my phone. Uh, But there are some people that always have access. Uh, Last night, my son came into my room. He was cold. Uh, He crept into the bed and uh, stayed there and disturbed the rest of my night's sleep. But he can because he's my son. He has access. And you may think, well, I don't belong. Or may think that, well, my sin prevents me from coming to God. But in Christ, in Christ, you have access anytime. But it's not just that we get individual access rights. That belonging to God also means we belong to one another. See, look at verse 19. He says, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. See, we're not foreigners, we're not strangers. By that he means, um, he's speaking about the kind of class system in the ancient world. You had all sort of tiers of people, I don't want to talk about three tiers, but there was um, tiers of people, there was a class system. So you had your kind of foreigners who were just traveling through, they had very little rights. You had your kind of resident strangers, people from other countries who lived there. But then you had your citizens. And Paul is saying, look, your fellow citizens, but not just of Ephesus, not of Rome, but of God's household. And he changes that image in verse 21. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling with which God lives by his spirit. See, the the temple in the ancient world was the place where your God lived. Uh, The temple housed Artemis. But the Ephesian Christians don't have a temple like that. Our temple is not made of bricks and mortar, it's made of people. But not just one type of people, people from every culture, race, background, education, every type. See, Christ dies to bring us to God, but as he does, he sweeps us up with all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds to belong to one another. And it's incredible because in the church, it's like we're getting a preview of the future where God will do that, where he will dwell with his people, from people with every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, I don't know about you, I, it's so easy, isn't it, to forget how important the church is. It's, it, Paul says it's a temple where, he dwells, uh, where God dwells himself. It's easy, isn't it, to get up on a Sunday, we all do it, I do it myself, and not think much about the significance of what we're doing, or perhaps uh, log on and not uh, think much about it. But actually, the church is God's household. It's where he dwells. It's where he's building a new creation, where those old divisions fade, where people can live together with their God, belonging to him, belonging to one another. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you again for your glorious generosity in the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died to destroy that dividing wall between us and the Father and us and each other. Please help us, our Father, 
by your Spirit, as Paul prays uh, in chapter 1, to grasp what this means for us and for one another. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.